afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this month's iteration of our threat briefing. Today, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the Cyber Security Breaches Survey issued by DTMS um, and also provide uh, a little bit of an update on a couple of other things that have been uh, around in the threat news um, over recent weeks. As usual, I'm joined by Hugh, one of our senior security consultants. Hi, Hugh. Hi, everyone. So we're going to start by talking about Cybersecurity Breaches Survey. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with this, so it's commissioned by DCMS, um, so Department for Digital Culture, Media and Support, as part of the National Cyber Strategy. It contains a, a load of useful information around um, sort of what organisations are thinking about cyber threats, about how they're responding to those and how they're generally dealing with cybersecurity. So we're going to drop a link to it into the chat so you can go and have a better read. Um, it is interesting. Um, there are lots of things in there that, that Hugh and I, I guess, want to pull out. Let's start at the beginning, Hugh. Let's start by pulling out, I guess, what were your what were your key takeaways from this year's review? And what did you, I guess, think about the kind of data that, that gets contributed in, into these from the survey? I guess that there's a lot of the, the sort of things that we've you know, grown to expect over the last few years. So I think they said... 83% of organizations have said that in incidents they've had, phishing has been the, the initial attack vector. As we've, we've mentioned on, on previous iterations, you know, technology and processor are improving you know, very quickly across the industry. So people are still you know, the, the easiest way in. They say that 21% of people reported the initial access was through uh, another more sophisticated means. And they've listed here um, denial of service, malware or ransomware. Now, I thought that was quite interesting because typically, you know, malware or ransomware would also be delivered through that phishing attack. So I couldn't find in the meat of the breaches survey that the, the delivery method for that was and why they, they called it out as a distinct method. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, I mean, obviously, the organisations that are surveyed as part of this are obviously split into different categories um, that, that maybe the differentiation was to cope with the differences in the size of the business or potentially through they separate out charities as well. So maybe there is you know some meaning behind separating them. But I, I think from my perspective, you're right, it is interesting that you know they're potentially seeing um, you, you know an increase in phishing attacks, no surprise there, but also that they're reporting that there's other more sophisticated means that are bringing in external threats. Um, I think some of the other common things that, that I wasn't surprised by was obviously the, the statistics around sort of the continuation of cyber attacks, really. I think the statistic is on par with last year, around about 40% of organisations have, have suffered a data breach or a cyber attack within the last 12 months, which I guess is to be expected, really. But what were some of the other points that I guess you found interesting within some of the kind of further on chapters for specifics? I guess one one key thing around ransomware that I thought was really quite interesting. Obviously, it's great that organisations are starting to have these specific ransomware related policies, as it is, you know, obviously something that's that's a real plague at the moment. The fact that fifty six percent of organisations have a policy that they will never, under any circumstance, pay a ransom struck me as, as slightly odd and I'd argue potentially too rigid. Obviously, the government always advised you know, that you shouldn't pay the ransom because when you are, you are funding serious organised crime and you know, you're just passing the buck on to the next guy. But I think to have a policy that you know, so specifically says we will never pay a ransom, you know, if 
you've lost your backups, you've lost all method of recovery, all your business critical systems are down, but the attacker's only asking for 100 quid. You know, that seems to me to be an obvious choice. I guess the point is, what's the point of having such a rigidly defined policy if in a situation like that, any organisation is just going to decide to divert from it? Yeah, it's an interesting point. A lot of uh, the discussions that we have with organisations around sort of preparation for that, you know, would lead them to make more of a business-led decision on whether it's, you know, if you put the ethical nature of it to one side, I think the financial side of it, you know, can sometimes, you know, give a, a an organisation real thought around the, the cost benefit of paying a ransom versus the potential cost of, of rebuilding or, you know, serious recovery of some of their systems. So, yeah, I, I think that is interesting. And I think also, interestingly, alongside that, I noted a couple of bits around the use of managed service providers and kind of the understanding of third parties in the supply chain. You know, there are a lot of organisations that use managed services and outsourcing the breaches survey seemed to indicate that there was more risk through using managed services and, and outsourcing than potentially insourcing and, and managing things yourselves. So what's your view on that, Hugh? So I think that's a really interesting point and potentially you know, a statistical anomaly. Obviously, this is this is a survey, right? So it's it's all self-reported. But the fact that they do specifically say there's a higher incidence among organizations that have you know, commercial agreements with managed service providers is odd. So all I can think is that as it's as it is self-reported, people that, you know, organizations that are not so mature don't quite, you know, have the right personnel or, or process in place to maybe identify when a breach has occurred, then you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they haven't been breached. This could be, you know, multiple organized crime groups sitting in their network right now, but they don't realize it. And so they say there hasn't been an incident. But you know, those those organizations that that have develop those those commercial relationships with MSPs, great, they're now spotting these things more regularly, even smaller incidents, they're identifying them, triaging them, you know, they have that that log. And so therefore, it does get reported. I would be surprised if, you know, by virtue of having these MSPs, you were actually, in you know, in reality, at more risk. Yeah, I'd be equally surprised. But I think, you know, moving on through some of the rest of the report, some of that is contextualised a little bit more. You know, particularly with supply chain, you know, there was a significant portion of businesses that had reported that they don't have the time, the cost or the expertise to actually assess risks through their supply chain. So I guess you could really look at that in two ways. You could either look at that in the sense that they don't understand what their supply chain risk looks like. But equally, if they are in a position where they don't understand what the risks in their supply chain are, then to some degree, a managed service provision from a third party that is contracted to deliver services to them is probably actually going to put them in a slightly better position. You know, obviously, they're still going to be expected to manage risks. But you know, if they have got big gaps within their supply chain risk management approach, then you know MSPs to some degree could help them to uh, almost fill those gaps and sort of try and minimise the potential exposure to them as well. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent right. So, as as with everything, it's the unknown unknowns that that really get you. And by by bringing on uh, an MSP, I think it was it was thirteen percent of organisations that that were reported as actually undertaking some sort of third-party risk management process. Yeah, it's, it's a huge undertaking, right? Where, where would you start if it's not something you've, you've got any foundation in? It's a, it's a big task. So getting a managed service provider on board to help with that, 
they're going to be able to identify the things that you wouldn't have even considered and help put that program together, which, yeah, is going to have a huge impact. I mean, it's it's on the NCSE's 10 steps, which are the the most basic building blocks of things that we need to be doing. And for only 13% of organizations to have actually considered the very foundational elements, you know, just really goes to show how important it is to, to get on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that maybe goes a long way to answering that, um, Section 3.2 starts talking about the involvement of senior management and, and the disparity, I think, between kind of the level of involvement across the different sizes of organisation, you know, may lead to that um, kind of lack of buy-in and, and input from senior management teams in, in actually understanding and driving that risk profiling within the supply chain. You know, a very small number of organisations are, are actually having regular conversations with senior management teams around cyber threats, which I think, you know, given the last couple of years and, and the sort of increase in attacks that, that we've seen and, and that the statistics here seem to indicate, you know, still seems to be quite an immature position for organisations not to be engaging senior stakeholders with understanding, uh, you know, cyber related risks to the business. Yeah, and I, I think also that section of the report was was interesting because it was one of the areas that had the greatest sort of banding discrepancy between different organizations. So charities were, you know, significantly less likely to be involving senior leadership with cyber risk. And as we, we saw, you know, we put some content out not that long ago about the, the Scottish mental health charity. Charities definitely are targets. So, you know, it's not a case of, oh, we don't need to, to have that level of involvement because, you know, it's not going to happen to us. Across sectors as well. So uh, finance and insurance, you know, proving a lot better for, for getting that, you know, stakeholder awareness and, and senior leadership buy-in. Yeah, it just surprised me the level of disparity that there was there. Who are these organisations, right, that don't have these conversations? I guess from our perspective in, in the industry, we're only seeing the clients that, that do involve in that process. So it sort of shocked me a bit. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, the finance sector, I guess, has more to lose um, and they are potentially higher profile targets. Therefore, I guess we'd expect to see a little bit more maturity. I think what was nice to see is that the trend of providing cyber awareness was increasing across all of the different sizes of organisations with the majority of organisations now providing some level of cybersecurity awareness training to, you know, to staff and to contractors, um, you know, across the board, which was nice to see because, you know, you alluded earlier to, you know, the increase in phishing attacks, you know, one of the key controls that we can put in place is, is good user awareness. It's also another one of the foundational building blocks for cyber essentials and, and the 10 basic steps to security. So I think that is nice to see that organisations are um, you know, empowering their staff by giving them uh, better awareness of some of the threats out in in the the real world, and you know, potentially why those organisations are a target as well. Uh, I think, I think personally, there's there's two things that we might see in the, in the next few years in the user awareness and training space, and that I think that'll either be a downturn in this. You know, I think we might be at the top of this um, trend of percentage of organisations getting involved. As people become more accustomed, it becomes more routine. You know, a lot of organizations, they have these e-learning platforms where they get, you know, a, a video, explain a video sent out and people just 
click through. I think once people have gone through this on this annual cycle a few times, that that buy-in might wane a bit. Or I think we'll start to see, uh, obviously, the approach I'm hoping for is more involved, more interesting ways of delivering that user awareness and training. I think gamification around phishing training is is really good. Something that I've seen organizations do in the past is, is flip it on its head, is talk to employees and train them how to fish someone. So set up an environment where people need to ring up a, a help desk and try and get a password reset. That's really good fun. And you teach them all the red flags and you have to get them to weaponize those red flags to successfully fish the person on the help desk. Um, and making it engaging and gamified like that really you know, gets everyone to take that message on board. And it's not something you forget and it's something you enjoy doing instead of just left clicking through um, you know, while you're sort of just having a 10 minute coffee break. Yeah, I think that's really valuable, isn't it? I think over sort of my various years of experience in delivering, developing various sort of awareness sessions, the more interactive you can make that, the more likely people are to retain that knowledge um, and actually think about sort of what those red flags are and, and, and what they should be doing about them, which is which is obviously far more important. I think on the flip side of that, though, um, there were some statistics that stood out to me around um, organizational reliance on technology and particular security tooling to help them identify and manage cyber threats as well, which I guess unless you're at a very mature kind of cybersecurity posture um, can be quite dangerous to rely on just tooling to tell you what's going on. I mean, obviously, you test these things every day, Hugh. What's what's your thought on the balance between these various pillars of securing an organization? And why do you think people are leaning more towards technology? Marketing is really good, I think. These vendors have invested a, a heck of a lot of money in their security tooling, and then they, they, they're really quite good at selling it. I think, personally, you know that the high-end security tooling is is really what comes at the end once you've got the, the the people in the process nailed, or you know you outsource that to an MSP who are gonna who are gonna handle that that whole package for you. Um, we we see it time and time again where people have invested you know significant amounts of money in uh, you know next generation XDR services, but. If you don't know what you're looking for, you know those those triggers aren't set up correctly. The logs aren't being ingested to the right place, triage sent to the right person. It just doesn't work. You know it's really easy to either miss things or flood yourself with far too many alerts. So anyone in a SOC's got you know a billion things to look at a day. It's not an easy job. It's it's not. They're not just plug and play, unfortunately. And um, you know that that is. A really common pitfall, I think, especially um, you know, in the cloud, um, organizations think, great, we've, so, so the cloud's fantastic for the native logging and monitoring options, right? You, you can enable CloudTrail, CloudWatch, all, all of those services. But I think organizations don't sometimes quite understand the, what specifically that's looking for. So great, that's looking for changes in your cloud environment. If resources have been, you know, access to resources has been granted, has this resource been made public? Has it been deleted, modified? It doesn't tell you the health of, you know, inside those resources. So you might have a, an EC2 instance or a virtual machine, and it will tell you what's happening to that virtual machine, but not what's happening in that virtual machine. It won't tell you necessarily, you know, unless you're using some like AWS Inspector, it won't tell you, you know, specifically the software that's in, inside that and the, and the health inside. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big challenge, right? So just you can't 
just take the tooling and hope that, that, that it works without really understanding the problem that you, you need it to solve. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and I think that ties into one of my next points, which is around cybersecurity strategy. Significantly more organizations, particularly from kind of mid-tier um, upwards, uh, they're, they're considering far more of their cybersecurity strategy now with particular focus on cyber insurance, which to, to some degree, I, I think I was quite surprised that, um, you know, I had a lot of conversations with clients around cyber insurance and around what that would mean for them. And a lot of that comes back to a minimum kind of level of security. But it seems that organizations across the board are now considering uh, including cybersecurity cover as part of their wider insurance policies. Do you think that's because they've maybe been subjected to more cyber attacks over the recent years? Or do you think that's in preparation for the way that the industry and, and I guess the threat actors are going um, as we move forwards? I think it's it's the sign of a, of a shift, right? We, we have sprinkler systems, we have fire extinguishers in our offices, yet we've still got you know, buildings insurance. We don't say, oh, we've got these controls, so we don't need the insurance. And likewise, we don't say we've got the insurance, so we don't need these controls. I think if nothing else, the fact that these policies exist and the um, you know the requirements around them, so a lot of them, the insurance companies will mandate that you have you know regular testing or some some baseline level of accreditation before giving you the policy. If nothing else, the fact that these organisations are being forced to to take these steps in order to get that insurance policy, I think, is a great thing. Yeah, I think there's a couple more points. I'm, I'm conscious of time, but. Looking at um, you know outsourcing of cybersecurity, you know within the survey, nearly forty percent of companies and thirty percent of charities are actually outsourcing some aspect of their cybersecurity function now. Uh, with the highest, unsurprisingly, being within larger organisations and within the finance and insurance sector, which uh, you know as we said earlier, I think is an indication that they're uh, you know higher profile targets and, and potentially more concerned about. Uh, their, their cyber security, but where does that leave us with smaller organisations who, uh, you know, are still representing probably somewhere between thirty-five and and fifty percent of their functions are outsourced for cyber security? Um, do you see that as a shift where organisations find it easier to outsource rather than insource? Do you think it's a cost thing? Where do you where do you think the benefit is for organisations to do that, having already? sort of noted earlier on in the report that using MSPs and uh, you know external parties can potentially increase the risk of exposure for the organization. Yeah, I think it's it's probably quite analogous to the cloud and the elasticity and, and, and scalability there. You know, think, fingers crossed, many people in your security function won't be necessary all of the time. I think that's that's where you get the benefit of that MSP is that when you need that resource on hand to help you to respond to something, all hands on deck, everyone's there. You've got absolute experts in their field who, who wouldn't come cheap at all to employ on a full-time basis at your fingertips, ready to, ready to work with you. I think, you know, for, for small organizations, MSPs absolutely are the answer. It would be, you know, in most cases, cost prohibitive to, to try and insource all of that. You know, managing the, the training of the staff, the ongoing development, None of that's your concern with an MSP. You know, you, you can you can see what the the qualifications they've all got. You know, happy that they they know what they're doing, the service they're offering you, and 
you know any any good MSP will will make sure that that onboarding process is is done, you know, in in a, in a good way that actually gets you set up properly and ingesting the right information. Yeah, all great points. I, I think the last point I wanted to draw attention to, I guess, was around uh, breaches or attacks and and the potential impact of them. Um, I found a really surprising stat that obviously we talked about around the uh, kind of average cost of a of, of a cyber attack. And, you know, it's no surprise that the that the number one uh, kind of attack vector that most people reported was phishing um, or social engineering. But an average cost of, of under four and a half thousand pounds to deal with a cyber breach. I mean, that to me seems very low. I mean, a lot of organisations that we're talking to, you know, regularly are just the internal cost of triaging the issue would potentially cost more than that. I mean, What's your view on on what makes that number up? Yeah, so I've been trying to do some digging into the you know the technical annex and how how they they came to that figure. I I don't understand. I I, I can't see how because it, this this wasn't even the average cost of of a breach, right? It was the average cost of security incidents over a twelve month period. So I, I initially thought, oh, if this is the average cost of a security incident and people are reporting being you know subject to a denial of service attack for you know, five seconds a day, then okay, that would that would bring the cost down. But no, it's the rolling cost in a twelve month period. So I simply don't have an answer to how that's so low because I can't envisage any scenario in which an organization that's reported an attack also reports less than you know four thousand three hundred pounds in a in a twelve month period. Yeah, I think from our experience we'd certainly see the cost of that being significantly higher for the organization you know, potentially with indirect costs as well for, you know, loss of reputation, loss of data, potential fines. I mean, it it seems to indicate that all of those things are are potentially included within that average. So I think, um, you know, for those of you that are interested, um, Hugh and I are actually going to contact DCMS and find out a little bit more about that and, and how that is structured. So we'll, we'll release something over the coming weeks about that. And, you know, you're more than welcome to come and have a read and, and offer your thoughts into that as well. So I'm moving away then from the cybersecurity breaches survey and onto a couple of other things that have been uh, quite hot in the threat reports over recent weeks. So um, Lapsus Group have, have obviously reared their head again, Hugh, around some of the activities that they've been undertaking um, what, what's your thoughts on their motivations now, and and you know what are they taking advantage of? Yeah, so it's been a really interesting roller coaster with with Lapsus Group over the last month or so because they first popped onto the scene and we thought, okay, this is a, a South American group. They seem to you know have some APT level abilities. They're they're quite significant, and yeah, they they were hitting a lot of organisations. So that that got our attention. You know, Nvidia, Samsung, Microsoft, Okta, Vodafone. You know not a list of, of minor companies that you'd expect to get hit by a group. And then the news started coming out, didn't it? it was, they just posted things on Telegram saying, hi, do you work for these companies? We'll, we'll chuck some money your way. So really taking advantage of, of insiders there and um, you know initial access brokers to achieve their initial access. So relatively low technical skill. And then the news comes out that actually, no, you know, they're not highly skilled attackers in South America. They're actually just a bunch of teenagers in the UK, which, you know, completely threw everyone off. I mean, the people that are, you know, working on determining 
attribution to groups here. You know, these are these are very highly skilled people who absolutely know what they're on about. To get it wrong in that in that way, um, I thought was was quite amusing. Yeah, and I think groups will continue to kind of act in this way, really, won't they? With a little bit of you know deception, a little bit of smoke and mirrors, and and yeah, I, I found it equally interesting that you know they'd managed to kind of disguise themselves for that long, you know, acting as as quite a, a, an advanced threat actor. And, and I think, you know, one of the other things that I saw more recently in threat news was around sort of recent CVEs, which seem to be bringing up, you know, historical issues again, um, you know, taking us day back to the days of, uh, you know, breaches within NHS Digital and, and across uh, the NHS. What's the news on the, the most recent CVE, Hugh? And, and why do you think that those, you know, vulnerabilities around SMB are, are still around? Yeah, it is, a, it is a strange one, right? So we saw... Um... CVE earlier in the month for on in in SMB uh, server message block. It's bizarre because you know we've we've seen so many issues with SMB before, like Eternal Blue, which I'm sure you know most people are going to be familiar with. And yet still we've got people that. Um, so so I guess it's not so bizarre that these issues arise because it's a it's a huge bit of functionality. But the fact that people are still getting hit by it and having publicly accessible um, SMB is more of a concern because it's not difficult, right, for a threat actor to, to now go and find organizations that have open SMB. There are, you know, widely available bits of tooling on the internet that you can just sign up for an account for. And you can just, just like Google, really, you can search for, show me machines on the internet that have SMB open that are vulnerable to this exploit. Uh, and they're they constantly scanning the internet. And, yeah, it'll just return you a list of search results that... Um, of machines that, that are vulnerable to that, that's like handed to a to a threat actor on a plate. So the fact that these misconfigurations and, and firewalls and, and things are still so prevalent all these years later is really quite a big concern. Yeah, I agree. Um, and interestingly, on that note around you know misconfiguration, um, we did have a, have a question come in with one of the registrations around uh, you know cloud security and around what we feel is is kind of the active threats and, and over the next quarter. I think I already know the answer to that. But what, what's your view on what the kind of most prevalent threat to cloud environments is um, now and kind of as we move forwards? Yeah, and that, that you know, as it were, last quarter really is still misconfiguration. That's, you know, across cloud and, and, and cloud technologies like container environments as well. You know, we're still seeing things like public S3 buckets and blobs databases with you know no no authentication on them kubernetes clusters uh, management portals again with with no authentication requirements publicly available elastic search databases um, you know really what we consider quite basic things that your, your cloud service provider's own dashboard will probably be giving you a red flag on these items then i think you know it's it's the problem that it's almost too good now, right? We're getting we're going back to that information overload. If you open up your, your cloud service provider portal, you're almost guaranteed to see a huge long list, everything in red, um, and you you know you can't see the wood for the trees. Some of those are, are going to be you know of of you know still okay, better if we don't have them, but little actual risk to an organization and not providing a direct attack path. But others, you know, like these publicly available buckets where you've got you know secrets inside and sensitive data just publicly accessible yeah and that is a direct attack path for an attacker and you know without that differentiation it can be quite difficult to um 
to identify that, along with the terminology that is used by a lot of these cloud service providers. So I think we've seen recently people um, allowing access to resources to authenticated users. That sounds reasonable, right? But unless you realize that authenticated users is users authenticated to that cloud service provider rather than to your organization. So anyone with any AWS account would be considered an authenticated user. So it's misconfigurations like that, which, which pose a huge risk at the moment. Great. Thanks, Hugh. So that's about all we've got time for today. Hopefully you found that interesting. Um, we posted a link to the full report for the, the cybersecurity breaches survey. Please do go and have a read. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to connect with QRI on, on LinkedIn. We'd be more than happy to talk about you know, your thoughts around some of these areas as well. Otherwise, thank you for attending. Have a great afternoon and we wish you well. Thanks, everyone.